You are seeing your patient, Chris Kennedy Davis, a 62-year-old with a 20-year history of type 2 diabetes and hypertension for a health maintenance visit. They are feeling well without new concerns, though they state they sometimes forget to take their doses of medication at night, which includes their metformin and lisinopril. On physical exam, their blood pressure is 128 over 86, and their exam is otherwise normal. Routine laboratory screens reveal normal electrolytes, a BUN of 22 milligrams per deciliter, and a serum creatinine of 1.9 milligrams per deciliter. A urinalysis is notable for one plus protein and is otherwise normal. As you prepare to explain your concerns to Chris, you wonder, how much glomerular kidney function does a serum creatinine of 1.9 milligrams per deciliter correlate with, and what can be done to evaluate this further? Consider your answer as we begin this next episode. Welcome to Audiobricks. I'm Adam Weinstein, bringing nephrology from our bricks to your ears. After completing this episode, you will be able to, one, discuss laboratory tests that assist in early detection of kidney disease, two, describe how serum creatinine and creatinine clearance may be used to estimate the glomerular filtration rate, three, discuss how urine appearance and findings on urinalysis may be used to detect kidney disease, and four, compare and contrast diagnostic imaging tools such as ultrasound, CT, and nuclear imaging used to make renal diagnoses. Part 1. What laboratory tests can be used to detect signs of kidney disease? Kidney disease is often asymptomatic in its early stages. We usually first detect it through lab tests and screens, especially for at-risk populations. These include screens of the urine, such as for protein or blood in the urine, or of the blood, which can be used to estimate glomerular filtration rate, or GFR. In certain cases, renal imaging studies such as renal ultrasound, CT scans, and nuclear scans may assist in renal diagnoses. Part 2. How do we estimate the glomerular filtration rate? The GFR is a measure of the rate by which a kidney filters the blood, so it's one of the key means by which we are able to assess kidney function and screen for kidney disease. In healthy children and young adults, the normal GFR is about 90 to 120 milliliters per minute per 1.73 meters squared. I'll refer to this as milliliters per minute henceforth, but just know the GFR is normalized to a person whose body's surface area is 1.73 meters squared. As we age, we lose about 10 milliliters per minute for every decade of life, so in older adults, GFRs as low as 60 are sometimes considered normal too. How do we measure GFR in our patients? In the large majority of cases, we estimate it using the serum creatinine. So what is the serum creatinine and how do we use it to estimate GFR? Well, creatinine is a waste product of muscle catabolism. Through our normal activity each day, our muscles produce a relatively fixed amount of creatinine each day, dependent on our muscle mass. Since creatinine is freely filtered by the glomerulus and there is no reabsorption of creatinine and only a small amount of secretion, the amount of creatinine cleared in our urine can be used to estimate how much creatinine is being filtered. Therefore, the serum creatinine level correlates with GFR. The higher the value, the worse the GFR. Why is this? Well, because if creatinine builds up, then less is being filtered, implying a lower or worse GFR. Oh no, this means that our patient, Chris Davis, who has an increased serum creatinine level, may have an abnormally low GFR. 
So a patient's serum creatinine depends on the GFR and also on their muscle mass. The higher the mass, the higher the creatinine. So taller athletes with larger muscle mass have normal higher serum creatinine levels compared to shorter, more sedentary individuals, as well as compared to children and those with conditions that impact muscle tone, such as spina bifida. Because of this person-to-person variation of normal serum creatinine levels, the serum creatinine is better used to track trends in GFR and to follow changes in the kidney function than it is to calculate a precise measurement of a patient's GFR. Another way the serum creatinine may be used to estimate GFR is through a calculation called a creatinine clearance. This is a measure of how much creatinine is cleared by the kidney in the urine over a 24-hour period. It is cumbersome since patients have to collect urine in a timed 24-hour collection, but it is not dependent on muscle mass, so it's sometimes preferred, especially when one is uncertain of how to interpret a serum creatinine level. Blood urea nitrogen is another test that we use, often paired with serum creatinine, to interpret a glomerular filtration rate. However, the BUN has many limitations in assessing GFR. This is due to urea being a product of protein catabolism in the liver. For example, low-protein diets and liver disease can lower the BUN without changes in GFR. Also, gastrointestinal bleeds, the use of corticosteroid drugs, and increased protein intake can elevate BUN values due to increased hepatic urea production without any change in GFR. These factors make BUN less precise, but it is often used to assess trends in kidney function along with serum creatinine measurements. Let's review what we just discussed with a question. Why is the serum creatinine a widely used marker to estimate GFR? A serum creatinine is produced at a steady rate, is freely filtered, not reabsorbed, and minimally secreted by the kidney. Part 3. How can urine testing be used to screen for kidney disease? In addition to serum creatinine, the urinalysis is an easy-to-perform, low-cost means to screen for renal disease. The analysis of the urine begins with inspection. Urine is normally yellow and transparent. Its color may be lighter or darker depending on its concentration. Urine that appears red or brown can indicate the presence of heme, either from red blood cells, free hemoglobin, or free myoglobin. Urine that appears opaque or cloudy may indicate the presence of bacteria, crystals, or other sediment dissolved in the sample. The urinalysis lab test conventionally is divided into two parts, the urine dipstick and the microscopic analysis of the urine, also called urine microscopy. The urine dipstick is a rapid point-of-care diagnostic tool that can be used as a screening test. It is a sensitive test capable of detecting the presence of a number of substances, including heme, leukocyte esterase, nitrites, albumin, pH, and glucose, among others. The urine dipstick also provides a measure of the specific gravity of the urine, which can be used to estimate its osmolality. The urine microscopy looks for structural elements that should not normally be in the urine, such as cells, casts, and crystals. It is performed by spinning urine in a centrifuge and then suspending the pellet at the bottom of the tube onto a glass slide. The values are typically reported by the lab as a number of cells or crystals or casts per low or high power field, meaning how many you can count on a low or high power on the microscope. Let's now dive deeper into each of the components of the urine dipstick and urine microscopy. Let's begin with the urine pH. 
The normal pH of urine may vary between 4.5 and 8.5 and changes depending on the acid-base homeostatic needs of the individual. In healthy individuals, the urine pH reflects the acid-base balance between a person's metabolism, generally acidic, and intake, also generally acidic, though certain foods and meals, such as vegetarian meals, are often alkaline. If an individual has an acidemia due to an extra-renal cause, such as lactic acidosis, the urine pH is decreased, generally less than 5. If impaired renal tubular function is the cause of an acidemia, then we might see a patient with acidemia have a higher urine pH. In contrast, a high urine pH, generally greater than 7, would be expected in any patient with an extra-renal cause of alkalemia. Now let's discuss the urine-specific gravity. The dipstick-specific gravity is an estimate of the urine concentration and correlates with the urine osmolality. It specifically measures the weight or gravity of the urine as compared to distilled water, so a dilute urine, as dilute as distilled water, would have a specific gravity of 1.000. Isotonic urine, meaning urine that has a similar osmolality to the serum, about 280 milliosmoles per kilogram, typically has a specific gravity between 1.008 to 1.015. Concentrated urine can show a specific gravity higher than 1.015 and may include values exceeding 1.030. Question break. If you tested the urine of a person found wandering in the desert without water supplies, would you expect the specific gravity of the urine to be high or low? That's right, the urine sample should be concentrated, so the specific gravity of the urine should be high. Okay, let's talk about the urine glucose now. The urine dipstick can detect the presence of glucose in the urine. Glycosuria occurs when the amount of glucose filtered exceeds the renal reabsorptive capacity. For example, in patients with diabetes, glucose can be detected in the urine when serum glucose levels exceed 150 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. Another example of glycosuria may occur with normal serum glucose levels, but when the proximal tubular reabsorptive capacity is reduced, as is seen in Fanconi syndrome. The dipstick can also screen for urine ketones, bilirubin, and urobilinogen. It will be positive for ketones, for example, in conditions of starvation or fasting, or in a diabetic ketoacidosis when acetoacetate and beta-hydroxybutyrate are present. The urine dipstick may detect bilirubin and or urobilinogen when obstruction in the biliary tree or liver dysfunction diverts conjugated bilirubin into the systemic circulation where it can be filtered by the kidney into the urine. Blood in the urine may be a sign of many renal and urologic diseases, including trauma, renal stones, urinary tract infections, urinary tract cancer, renal cysts, urinary tract obstruction, and glomerular diseases. So let's discuss the urine dipstick screen for blood next. As we discussed earlier in this episode, the urine dipstick measures for the presence of heme in the urine. So if there were heme in the urine, this could mean there is blood in the urine, but it could also mean there is hemoglobin in the urine, such as in hemolytic diseases, or it could mean there is myoglobin in the urine, as occurs in rhabdomyolysis. So when we are interpreting the urine dipstick, we do this in conjunction with a urine microscopy. If the dipstick screen is positive for blood and we do not see any red blood cells on microscopy, that suggests hemoglobinuria or myoglobinuria as the cause. Whereas if we do see red blood cells, that confirms blood in the urine, also known as hematuria. 
Additionally, nephrologists typically assess the morphology of red blood cells in the urine and describe them as either eumorphic, which are normal-appearing red blood cells, or dysmorphic, which are abnormal-appearing red blood cells. Eumorphic red blood cells suggest urinary tract causes of blood in the urine rather than kidney causes. Urinary tract causes might include renal stones, urinary tract cancers, and urinary tract infections like cystitis. On the other hand, dysmorphic red blood cells could suggest a glomerular disease, possibly because their shape is distorted as they squeeze through a damaged glomerular basement membrane into the tubular fluid. Red blood cell casts are another finding in the urine microscopy that could support a diagnosis of glomerular disease. If found, these are pathognomonic for glomerular causes of hematuria. Casts are cylindrical molds of the renal tubule made from protein and cellular debris. Casts may form normally in concentrated urine specimens as the slower-moving tubular filtrate concentrates into a clear cylindrical mold called a hyaline cast. When there are red blood cells in the tubular lumen, then these may mold into the cast, resulting in a red blood cell cast. Let's pause here for a question break. Why might a dipstick show a positive result for blood when no red blood cells are present in the urine microscopy? The dipstick might show a positive result for blood when no red cells are present due to hemoglobin or free myoglobin in the urine. Another common urine test is for white blood cells in the urine. These may be seen in urinary tract infections and also in renal inflammatory diseases like interstitial nephritis and transplant rejection. On the urine dipstick, the presence of leukocyte esterase is a positive screening test for white blood cells in the urine. Leukocyte esterase is an enzyme found in neutrophils and macrophages, so the presence of it in the urine suggests there are white cells in the urine. We can differentiate a bacterial urinary tract infection from other causes of white cells in the urine by also screening for bacteria in the urine. This can be done through urine dipstick assessing for the presence of urine nitrites. Urine nitrites are a metabolic byproduct of many bacteria that cause UTIs, such as E. coli, Enterobacter, Proteus, and Klebsiella species, among others. A notable exception of a UTI-causing organism that does not produce nitrites, and so would be negative for nitrites, is Enterococcus. Therefore, we also screen for bacteria using urine microscopy. We can also look for and confirm white blood cells in the urine using urine microscopy, too. White blood cells in the urine can be due to disease anywhere in the urinary tract. In contrast, white blood cell casts would only occur from kidney diseases, resulting in an inflammatory infiltrate because to form a cast, the white cells must form together or mold together within the renal tubular system. Therefore, we might identify white blood cell casts in diseases such as pyelonephritis and interstitial nephritis and transplant rejection. Moving on from white blood cells and bacteria, we also use the urine microscopy to screen for urine crystals. Urine crystals are sometimes seen in healthy individuals, especially if they have a concentrated urine sample, for example, first thing in the morning or after some healthy exercise. On the other hand, urine crystals may also be a clue to the presence of or risk for a renal stone formation. The most common type of crystals are calcium oxalate crystals. Calcium oxalate crystals may take different forms depending on composition. Monohydrate calcium oxalate crystals are shaped as dumbbells or needles, whereas the more common dihydrate calcium oxalate crystals look like envelopes. Another important crystal that may be seen are struvite crystals, and these are due to struvite or ammonium magnesium phosphate stones. 
These occur with certain causes of urinary tract infections, with organisms such as Klebsiella, which produces the enzyme urease. Microscopically, struvite crystals appear like coffin lids. Uric acid crystals are another type of crystal that may be observed. These crystals take varied shapes in the urinalysis, but often appear as rhomboids under microscopic examination that enhance under polarized light. Another type of crystal screened for are cysteine crystals. In acidic urine, cysteine is highly insoluble and forms hexagonally shaped crystals, which are pathognomonic for the disease cystinuria. Okay, let's take a break with a quick question. What would you expect struvite crystals to appear like under the microscope? Struvite crystals appear as coffin lids under urine microscopy. Let's take a brief break from the urine microscopy and again go back to the urine dipstick and discuss the screen for protein in the urine. If I recall, our patient Chris Davis had some protein in the urine. Healthy individuals do have some protein in the urine, but typically in quantities below detection and low molecular weight proteins like TAM horsefowl protein secreted by the tubules, which are not detected by the urine dipstick. The urine dipstick screens for albumin in the urine. When the urine dipstick detects albuminuria, this is a concerning sign for glomerular disease. Sometimes we may see low levels of detection of urine albumin in concentrated urine samples too. So the presence of proteinuria is a cue to quantify the protein in the urine more carefully by measuring a protein to creatinine ratio on a spot sample or a 24-hour urine sample for protein. Note that one plus protein like our patient Chris Davis had implies a milder amount of protein in the urine, whereas three plus or four plus protein often means a very heavy amount of protein, worrisome for nephrotic range proteinuria and nephrotic syndrome. And back to the urine microscopy, let's talk about granular casts. Granular casts represent the contents of degenerated renal tubular epithelial cells molding into a cast. So think of it as a renal tubular epithelial cell floating around in the urine, degenerating, and its damaged and necrotic contents forming into small granules within a cast mold. When we view them under the microscope, they appear as coarse and grainy. These are most often noted clinically in the context of acute tubular necrosis, a form of acute kidney injury marked by tubular cell injury and necrosis, either due to toxic or ischemic injury. Muddy brown casts are a term used often synonymously with granular casts, but really they are just a type of granular cast. They imply a more severe injury, such as with severe acute tubular necrosis, due to the intensity and coarseness of the granulars. They are muddy, whereas a light or fine granular cast implies a more chronic or less severe renal tubular cell injury. Renal tubular epithelial cells may also be seen in the urine microscopy. They are a hallmark of acute tubular necrosis, much like granular casts. It's just that they have not degenerated yet, so we observe them as cells rather than their degenerated content as granular casts. Renal tubular epithelial cells are larger than white blood cells and have centrally located nuclei. When seen in the urine, they are typically grouped into casts or sheets. Renal tubular epithelial cells should not be confused with cells from farther down the urinary tract. 
Urothelial or transitional epithelial cells originate from the renal pelvis down to the proximal urethra, and they may be quite variable in shape due to expansion and contraction, but are often triangular or pear-shaped in urine specimens, and not as perfectly round as renal tubular epithelial cells are. Squamous epithelial cells from the distal urethra and external genital mucosa may also be seen and are distinctive by their more flattened appearance. Urine samples positive for bacteria in the presence of squamous epithelial cells indicate contamination from genital secretions and can't be reliably interpreted. Obtaining a fresh, clean sample is usually the best next step. Part 4. What is the role of imaging in diagnosing renal disease? Renal imaging may be a useful tool to confirm and clarify certain renal diagnoses. Renal ultrasound uses the difference in sound waves reflected and refracted off the body to create an image delineating solid, liquid, and gas components. Renal ultrasound is a great test to evaluate for urinary tract dilation, such as from obstruction. This condition is identified by detecting hypo or anechoic dilation of the renal pelvis and or calyces. Renal ultrasound can also be used to evaluate for renal masses, cysts, and stones. It can differentiate simple renal cysts from complex masses and abscesses. For example, it can detect multiple renal cysts in patients with autosomal-dominant polycystic kidney disease. Additionally, ultrasound can sometimes help identify signs of chronic kidney disease, which may show signs of scarring, including an abnormally small size and increased echogenicity from the scarring. A special type of renal sonography is duplex Doppler ultrasonography, where changes in renal artery blood flow can detect renal artery stenosis, a cause of secondary hypertension. Renal sonography is preferred to CT in all pregnant patients and children because it is not associated with radiation exposure. Computerized tomography, or CT, uses x-rays to take a series of images in various planes, such as the sagittal or axial planes, to give a three-dimensional view of the patient. The scanning can be performed with and without contrast. Besides the use of contrast, which can be harmful for patients with kidney disease, a potential drawback of CT scanning is the significant radiation exposure. CT scans are still used to evaluate for solid lesions or masses of the kidneys, such as renal stones or renal tumors. They can identify fluid collections like urinary tract dilatation and cysts, too, but are not the preferred imaging study for those compared to ultrasound. CT scans can differentiate non-malignant and malignant renal tumors, as well as stage them. We'll finish this episode by discussing renal nuclear scans. Radionucleotide scanning can follow injected radioisotopes through the renal vasculature and into the ultrafiltrate. This allows us to measure comparative function in the two kidneys and urinary tract excretion of the isotope, something not easy to compare and measure otherwise. This is sometimes crucial when surgeons need to remove a renal tumor and need to decide whether to remove the whole kidney or do a nephron-sparing surgery if the remaining kidney were non-functional or less functional. Let's finish with a question break. What kind of imaging test can detect differential function of the two kidneys? Nuclear scans can provide information about differential kidney function. And that's all I have today for renal laboratory tests and imaging. So let's see if we've completed our goals for this episode. First, 
Can you discuss laboratory tests that assist in early detection of kidney disease? Urine dipstick and urine microscopy can detect a wide variety of substances in the urine that may be signs of different types of systemic and or localized kidney diseases. Protein in the urine is a worrisome sign for glomerular disease, and we use tests of serum creatinine and creatinine clearance to estimate changes or concerns with the glomerular filtration rate. Additionally, renal imaging studies may help refine renal diagnoses. Next, can you describe how serum creatinine and creatinine clearance may be used to estimate the glomerular filtration rate? We use measures of creatinine to estimate GFR since it is a substance produced at a steady state that is freely filtered by the kidney, not reabsorbed, and only minimally secreted. The serum creatinine concentration is best used to follow trends in the GFR. Now, can you discuss how urine appearance and findings on urinalysis may be used to detect kidney disease? The urine dipstick is a rapid point-of-care diagnostic tool that can be used as a screening test, detecting the presence of a number of substances, including heme, leukocyte esterase, nitrites, albumin, pH, and glucose, among others. The urine microscopy is a tool that can detect the presence of cells, such as red blood cells or white blood cells, casts, bacteria, or crystals in the urine. And lastly, can you compare and contrast diagnostic imaging tools such as ultrasound, CT, and nuclear imaging used to make renal diagnoses? Renal ultrasound is helpful to detect urinary tract dilatation and cysts and may be used to identify masses and stones as well. CT scans are used to take higher resolution images of solid masses and more sensitive to detect renal stones. Nuclear renal scans can determine differential function of and drainage function of the two kidneys and urinary tracts. Thinking back to our patient, Chris Kennedy Davis, who presented for a health maintenance visit with a 20-year history of type 2 diabetes and hypertension and was feeling well but had an elevated serum creatinine level of 1.9 milligrams per deciliter and a urinalysis with 1 plus protein, as you prepared to explain your concerns to Chris, you wondered, how much glomerular filtration function does a serum creatinine of 1.9 milligrams per deciliter correlate with, and what can be done to evaluate this further? You tell Chris that they have an increased serum creatinine level, which means that their kidneys' filters are not filtering at a normal rate, but rather at a decreased rate. This may be due to their long-standing diabetes and high blood pressure, both of which can take a toll on the kidney filters. You explain it will be important to monitor this and assess it further to try and maintain their current level of function and slow and further decline. This can be done by performing some urine testing, including a 24-hour urine creatinine clearance, and quantifying the amount of protein in the urine further as well. Together, these tests will give a fuller picture of the current level of function and concern for worsening decline. Chris's medication, lisinopril in particular, can help slow decline in kidney function and improve protein in the urine in patients with diabetic chronic kidney disease, so you troubleshoot strategies with Chris to help them with their adherence and feel more comfortable and confident taking this reliably. And that's all I have for today's audio brick. Thanks for joining me. If you like this episode, give it a thumbs up or a comment. 
You can enjoy the full Brick experience online at www.usmle-rx.com, complete with illustrations, questions, flashcards, and active learning. Stay healthy out there.